Welcome to the Emerging Markets Growth Leaders Podcast with True. On this show, we speak with founders, investors, and industry leaders from exciting businesses across Asia Pacific, the Middle East, and Africa. We ask them to share their fascinating stories and invaluable market insights and experiences across e-commerce, fintech, and many other growth industries in some of the most fascinating locations in the world. My name is Sam Randall, and I am a partner at True Search, the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have helped tech startups throughout their growth phase from pre-seed to post-IPO in both developing and emerging markets. We have over 350 search professionals in offices spanning North America, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Alan Wong, the Chief Technology Officer at Indonesian startup, Ula. On this show, we explore Alan's stellar background at Amazon and Booking.com, his fascinating journey into the very current and fast-growing world of B2B SME marketplaces, and how customer obsession is at the heart of everything that Ula do. We hear how this incredibly fast-growing startup managed to grow throughout the COVID pandemic and hear what is in store in the near future. Well, Alan, uh, firstly, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for taking time out of your incredibly, incredibly busy schedule to join me on 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 the uh, on the podcast. Um, how how are you? How have you been keeping? Doing quite well, Sam. Thank, thanks for inviting me. I think uh, what what you're doing is great. I look, uh, read through or listened to some of your uh, podcasts already, and um, very inspiring stuff with different leaders in in the region. But uh, I myself am doing well now, uh, coming up to a full year of lockdown in uh, after COVID. So uh, adapting to to this finally, and uh, not getting bored out of my mind at home. How long have you been in in um, Indonesia now? That's a that's a Interesting question. I, I got stuck here actually almost at uh, the one year mark. It's almost uh, March 12th or 14th. I forget okay. that I flew into Jakarta thinking that I would stay here for a week and my stay got extended by now a year. So uh, that, yeah. that's that what happened. <laughs> so basically your whole experience of Indonesia so far has been in lockdown. <laughs> uh, pretty much so. Uh, we, we started the company in, in uh, December 2019, January-ish, and sure. that was a lot of frequent trips to Indonesia, to Jakarta and, and Surabaya, but uh, for the most part, yeah, the last year, uh, most of my experience here has been in lockdown. And I know that you guys have had some some great successes recently with the with the raise and everything, and I'd love to cover that in some detail. But I guess I guess first, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey, um, sort of from you know from uni through to to Ula. You've got some sort of great great businesses on your on your sort of profile, some great experiences. Would love to hear a little bit about I guess what got you into engineering in the first place, and and how and how that developed as a as a career. Yeah, of course. I think, uh, as with everything in my life, uh, just things just happen. Uh, so I'll start really at the at the beginning, where uh, I was born in Hong Kong. I'm uh, I'm, I'm Chinese, so uh, spent four years in Hong Kong um, and and left fairly early on in my life. Uh, parents just decided that uh, with the uh, uh, economic status in, in Hong Kong and and the political status changing, uh, moving to Canada was was the right thing. So we moved over there. Uh, and pretty much that was where I got all of my education starting all the way from kindergarten. And, you know, growing up, uh, it was, it was challenging to be kind of, uh, different, especially in, uh, Canada and in Toronto, where there was not a lot of, uh, Chinese folks, but, uh, adapted and some of the Chinese and Eastern traditions still lived in the family where, uh, the, the three occupations you could choose was, or actually it was, you can choose any occupation you want. As long as they were the three, you were either a lawyer, a doctor or an, or an engineer, maybe I don't actually remember, but, uh, I, I chose the, uh, engineering path because my, my parents really thought I would be a great doctor, but I, uh, did not <laughs> share that dream. And, and so I took the engineering as, as kind of the easy path out. Uh, and, and for me, uh, <laughs> growing up, the math and sciences were kind of my forte. So it naturally, uh, flowed into that. Uh, and then I, uh, went to school in the university of Waterloo and I got my bachelor of uh, computer engineering there. And that was just a two hour drive away from Toronto. And then, um, after that, uh, I joined the brain drain of Canada, which was the is common thing where the U.S. tech companies go and heavily recruit from uh, these Canadian schools. And so 
uh, even during internships, I had uh, been in the US for uh, interning with different tech companies. And then I uh, landed in uh, Amazon as my, my first job in, in Seattle. It was supposed to be a two year gig and I was gonna go back and rejoin family. Uh, but two years became four, four became six, and I ended up staying eight years in, in Amazon. And I worked on uh, all uh, variety of things, mostly focused on kind of the back end supply chain uh, in inventory planning in uh, supply chain systems. We worked on some of the first mile, last mile deliveries. And then I transitioned more into the front end with uh, catalog management. And at the time, Amazon was uh, expanding the platform to include third party merchants, which is over 50% of the business today. So that was that was pretty cool to work on it then and see how it grew up. Uh, and I spent quite a amount of time in search indexing to make searches more relevant, I guess. And then uh, after those eight years, I, I decided, well, it's time to get out of Amazon. And uh, a normal person would say, this is probably a good time to go back to Canada. And I ended up just staying another four years in, in uh, Seattle in uh, two different early stage startups. And uh, the first one I was in was employee number four. The second one, I was like employee 18. But uh, both of them uh, really had founders that really believed in me. And, and that's kind of what seeded my, I guess, my, my entrepreneur uh, mindset. So uh, after those 12 years, uh, being in, in startups, very taxing. I uh, wanted to get out of the US because of the uh, political changes at the time as well. This was in 2017. I moved over to uh, Europe and I joined uh, Booking.com in Amsterdam, a very friendly city of city that I loved a lot. And uh, the, the mission there was to uh, build out the hypothesis for serving B2B customers in uh, Booking.com, which was a predominantly B2C company. Now, uh, after that, spent uh, two and a half years there, uh, built out uh, this, this wonderful engineering organization. And then what happened there was uh, a, a longer story of how uh, ULA itself started when I uh, met my uh, long-time co long coworker that I've uh, known since day one of Amazon, uh, Nippun, who's my co-founder now, and he was passing through Amsterdam in late 2018. Uh, I ended up uh, meeting him for, for drinks, which turned out to be drinks and dinner, which turned out to be two follow-up days of, of meals and just, just chatting. And we both were at the point in our lives where you know, we just wanted to go do something cool. And so uh, that conversation kind of ended at the end of uh, 2018. I got a call from him in early 2019 and around March. And he's like, come check out Indonesia. Indonesia is a really cool place. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, Nippun had a, uh, spent some time in Sequoia and he was an investor in uh, a lot of the unicorns here, uh, Tokopedia and Traveloka, if I remember correctly. And Having that exposure, he knew a lot about the Indonesian economy. And for me, being Chinese, I have not stepped foot in uh, Southeast Asia, which was uh, a little odd for me as well. So after 30 plus years of my life, I hopped on a plane uh, on the invitation of Nipun and I joined him in Jakarta for a week in about May. And there we were just walking around um, markets. And uh, that's how we kind of learned about this uh, this problem of small merchants having to, you know, having a very challenging time to source inventory to essentially deal with the big behemoths in uh, the, 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 the supply chain and the, the value chain was just uh, very fragmented. And so we saw that opportunity there. And uh, after that, we kind of talked a lot about uh, what other things that we could be doing, um, but essentially flesh out more of the idea throughout the middle of the year. And then by the end of 2019, uh, I booked a ticket uh, from Amsterdam to Singapore and we didn't know what we were doing, but uh, that, that's when that's when the, uh, the current journey of ULA really started and we started to figure out what we really wanted to do and then uh, essentially build the software around it to get to where we are today.
Fantastic. And just one of the things I'm always keen to explore, because when you, uh, and we'll, we'll sort of come back to, to Ula, obviously, I'd like to spend quite a bit of time on it. But one of the things I'm really sort of interested in, in, in understanding a little bit more about is, um, you know, with the eight years you spent at Amazon from sort of 2006, you know, you must have seen some pretty staggering growth across that, across those eight years. I guess, what did, what were some of the really interesting things that you guys learned collectively or that you took from that time or what 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 was it that made that time sort of so special yeah uh, you know what I, I was in amazon from 2006 through 2014 if i remember correctly when i joined the company uh the company was about uh 2600 2900 people it's a big company right uh by the time i left i if i remember correctly again it was over thirty thousand, and so a 10x growth in the eight years there um complete completely changed um, from technology to processes to people to number of businesses to just how big each incremental change would bring benefits to the company it was huge and and so uh, I think throughout all of the change what was the biggest learning I think the the learning from Amazon is what we brought into Ula was uh, the first leadership principle of, of Amazon is, uh, customer obsession. And for us now in, in ULA is connect with the customer. We built everything starting from the lens of the customer. We encourage, even though it's COVID and it's a little bit difficult to encourage this, but our entire team is itching to be with the customer to understand what are their problems. And we build solutions and technology to address those, those solutions. And I think that is the winning strategy for creating a successful business and value actually for, for your users is to actually solve a real problem that they face on a day-to-day -day basis. And do you find that the, having that sort of customer obsession, it obviously keeps, um, keeps the engineering teams engaged. It keeps everybody, everybody sort of along a particular mission or aligned to a particular mission. Yeah. I think that's, that's actually like it's spot on. Uh, everyone that is uh, in, in the company right now, I believe, shares that common mission um, because for the Indonesians and uh, maybe there's a little bit more context, um, my team, especially in technology, uh, I have a split organization. Half of the team is in Indonesia, in Jakarta, and half of them is in India and Bangalore. And the, for, the, for the Indonesians in, in the company, it makes perfect sense on, on why we're doing this. And the reason is mm. uh, they interact with these small merchants uh, throughout their lives. And even today, uh, it might not be a daily occurrence, but maybe weekly, they would visit a, one of these small merchants to uh, buy something, whether it be drinks or a snack or anything convenient on the street because they're everywhere. But for our Indian team to connect, it turned out to be a super easy thing to talk about too, because uh, they're Kirana stores in India. And these Kirana stores are essentially the same things as the warungs that we have in Indonesia. And just telling that story and being able to connect that way allowed our Indian team to essentially not be here locally, but they were fully aware of what the problems and challenges and why they were doing what they're doing and who was the customer they were building for. Interesting. And I'd like to, I'd like to come back to the point on, on the team engagement. Cause I think, um, I mean, sort of, I think we're going to talk about it at sort of some length sort of shortly, just about the challenges of growing a tech organization in Southeast Asia. But instead, if we can then back to, um, the, the, the original genesis of the idea and obviously sort of walking around those, those marketplaces, seeing the warrings and seeing how they were engaged in the, the, the problems that they faced. I mean, you know, I, I, Indonesia's supply chain is no joke, right? It's a it's a big country. It's a very big, you know, sort of archipelago. There's there's islands all over the place. So, how you know what what have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced, and how have you gone about building uh, something to service a market which is obviously has such high barriers to entry because of the sort of uniqueness of its geography and yeah, no, no joke that the geography is a challenge. Uh, little known fact, I, I actually have tried to find the answer to this fact. Uh, how many islands are there in Indonesia? I haven't been able to actually find an official answer. I don't know if actually one exists. I don't know if anybody has gone to go and count the islands, but it's somewhere in the region of 16,000, 17,000, somewhere there, uh, you know, give or take. And it's a lot of islands. Uh, so I think geographically, for sure, 100%, that, that's a challenge. But for us, I think the, uh, 
we, we don't want to take on the, the biggest challenges. First, I think our, our biggest challenge here that we've chosen to take on is actually back to the customer. What, what does the customer actually want and what do they need? Uh, that, that's what we've taken on as the first thing that we wanted to tackle. And from, from that perspective, the challenge of the customer is really how do we service their uh, needs and requirements of conducting their business, which is, you know, selling something as a small merchant or buying when first it starts uh, with buying something and then they sell back to the customer. Uh, the, the supply chain you mentioned very complex. I think what we have learned is, you know, in the, in this retail supply chain, there are many different players. All of them are, you know, handing product from one entity to another. And then another thing that, that happens is that when, when they do that, everyone wants to take a margin because there's all of these are businesses. Right. And so what happens is that there's a lot of inefficiencies that end up happening in this supply chain, this value chain. And for us, uh, we're, we're just solving this and being able to aggregate all this demand um, and giving back some of these margins back to the retailer so that they are able to improve their livelihood, improve their business. Um, that, that's what our, our mission is about, is actually empowering the small merchants, small retailer. Okay, and so I, I guess you know I probably should have asked this at the at the sort of outset, but you know could you could you describe how how Ula operates in the market, what the what the the mission statement is, and I think you sort of partially answered it there, but perhaps sort of just defining that down to what what that sort of mission statement problem statement is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for uh, for folks that uh, aren't in India or aren't in Indonesia, understanding what a warung or a kirana store, what their function is, is actually kind of challenging. And for me, coming to Indonesia, I guess, uh, on my first trip in 2019, and later, when I actually came here more frequently to understand what we were building, I had to go through this same learning curve. And what I find out was, with uh, a develop in a developing country like Indonesia, a large part of the population is still uh, on either daily wages or weekly wages. And so what you and I probably grew up with uh, buying in bulk is not an option because there's not enough or uh, no one wants to invest that much into a big bottle of shampoo. Who wants to buy a liter of shampoo when uh, you can use that money effectively to put food on the table? Uh, so th these warung serve as this, uh, this cornerstone of the society where they're providing things in the right quantities for this target segment of, of customers. And so, uh, you know, back to that, that was really what the Warung meant in this society, in, in this economy, and why they're so important to support uh, Indonesians and, you know, Kirana stores for Indians. This is why it's important. But where Ula is coming in is we come uh, with a notion of blending um, uh, technology with betterment of life. Uh, I, I truly believe as a technologist myself, spending so much time in technology that uh, technology is game-changing. It's, it's life-changing even. For me, I started to come into this technology space when I was 12, 13, reading a book about how to write batch files on uh, MS-DOS. And, uh, you know, I was, I was brought up in, in the age of uh, floppy disks and whatnot. But uh, technology has changed my life, definitely, from a career perspective, but also from simplicity, you know, who would have believed uh, in 1995 that you could click a button and you can have a anything you wanted uh, at your doorstep in two hours? It just wasn't wasn't a a thing that people dreamed of. And so, knowing that technology is game changing, um, we wanted to bring in technology to revamp or change or level up the small retailer. Indonesia probably started off um, having a very big growth in uh, mobile phones usage in around maybe 2015. Uh, so a lot of the customers today are small retailers that are on the platform are only generation one, generation two uh, users of uh, cell phones. And their, their ability to I guess, use the cell phone to 
conduct more of their business is what we try to do. So provide them a place to transact, to, to first source their inventory. But the second is, you know, what can they do with this tiny computer? Can they manage their inventory? Can they uh, do more sales? Can they attract more demand? Um, it opens up so much, so many possibilities that we haven't even touched or explored. But at the end of the day, what, what is ULA as a marketplace? This is step one. Solve this one problem first, and then we can expand to solving other problems of every small merchant uh, that wants to do business and can take it online or use some sort of online tooling to make their lives better, whether it's operationally or whether it is financially. Uh, I, I think we can do that with technology. And then, so if, how, how does the, the marketplace behave then for the, the merchants and how do they interact with it, with their, with their hand phone? And uh, I, I guess where, what, what, what does it replace from the, from that, from that ecosystem or what, what does it improve from that ecosystem for them? Yeah. So uh, like I was saying, the, the traditional way of, of doing business uh, is very complex. There's many different touches and many different players that, that sell goods to these uh, small retailers. Uh, traditionally, what has happened is there are uh, individual, we call them, uh, let's just, they're locally called as the sellers. They're essentially working for a brand, for example, a uh, PNG or a Unilever or any of the local brands. But what they're doing is that they have uh, these people that walk around the markets, they uh, canvas streets, they identify these stores. And either there's two options. One is I have some product in my backpack or on my bike. Do you want to buy and transact right now? Or uh, I'll take an order and then I will submit the order for you. And then you will get someone who delivers something uh, some amount of days later. And that's how product was sold. But one of the things that uh, was very, I guess, unique, or if anything, was no one, uh, every brand had their own uh, sellers. They had their own uh, salespeople. And so these uh, small stores needed to interact with so many people on a daily basis, maybe weekly basis, to get a full selection of inventory. And now when what we have done is we're brand agnostic. We just want to sell the products that our small merchants or wild rooms want to buy. And so what we've done is we've put them all into one place, into one app, and we've loaded it on, on their phone. And we say, you can order from us at any time. Your deliveries are going to be, well, we, we tell them exactly when their delivery is going to be on the date. And, uh, it's doorstep delivery. You interact with no one and you get one delivery all merged together. And obviously you guys have, you know, raised a, a series, a, a very, very chunky series. I recently um, talk to talk to me a little bit about how the growth is. Cause you know, I think, you know, you only really started the, the company a little over a year ago and, and got going. So talk to me how that, how that growth has gone and, and, and what, what you guys have achieved in that year to, to lead to this, to, to this rise. So I, I would, uh, first and foremost, I would say uh, investors and our, our, uh, our investors really believe in the mission. And we could see that from uh, all of our investors who had participated in seed came back to, to uh, give us essentially more of their time and money to support us because they believed in uh, our, our mission. And the, uh, I think there's a call out for uh, Sequoia being a brand, being very well uh, integrated into Southeast Asia, having made a lot of investments over time. So they provide a lot of uh, insight into how to do business in Southeast Asia. Lightspeed, uh, another top tier VC that uh, is uh, you know, working with us, they have backed uh, Udan, which is a very similar model in uh, India. They've backed uh, Fair, a very similar uh, and very success, both very successful companies. Uh, and having them uh, join us, uh, very, very useful. And to the point where uh, I, I think we have uh, Kona, who understands our, um, our, our financial uh, enablement uh, vision and uh, B Capital, which uh, also believes in our vision in the long term, which had joined us in the Series A. Now, what have we achieved, right? I'll, I'll take you back to January 2020. Uh, this was January 
2020 when we launched uh, the app. And this was the first time we were, you know, it was in the Play Store. We had gone out and we sold this app to customers. It was the first time we had onboarded people to the app. And in a short year after that, uh, what we've achieved, we've, we've onboarded over 20,000 stores and that might uh, seem like a uh, small number, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a great start in that we have a lot of uh, belief and with these stores, they're always transacting again and they're not B2C, which they just buy one thing, they disappear for a few months and they come back. Our B2B customers are you know, ordering frequently, seven to eight times a month even. So uh, that, that, that's really the, the value that I think we've provided to the market. This is how our customers are signaling back to us that they do actually like what we we're doing. And this is their signal that uh, they want us to stay around. Yeah, I know there was a, 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 a business in Pakistan recently which had a, a pretty large seed raise which did something similar. And I think they, mm -hmm. they'd onboarded 10,000 people last year, which they're very happy with. And it's, it's, I mean, how, how, does one, how does one go about onboarding 20,000? One would assume that it maybe started with uh, a, a perhaps a, a more sort of in-person approach to get those first few adopters on um, and then moved more to a a sort of, I don't know, word of mouth or, or sort of perhaps talk us through how that, how you went about acquiring that, that sort of number of people. And then also how you went about building um, a platform that could support that much sort of inbound, inbound traffic in, yeah. a, in a, in quite a short space of time. Yeah. And I think addressing the first one is, you know, how, how do we acquire? I think the, it goes back to the customer. What are they, what were they used to at that point in time? And they were used to visits from these uh, sellers from different brands. So they were used to visit uh, people coming up to the store. What they weren't familiar with was technology. You know, I, I go back to my earlier comment. These were first and second generation uh, cell phone users. They didn't understand apps. Uh, when you said, what is the internet? They will open up Chrome and that is their internet for them, right? Uh, so there, there, there was this clear gap, which they went, they were coming from a pen and paper world and we wanted to get them into an app world. Super difficult. Uh, I mean, I, I always envision back to uh, place my, my mother in my, in my vision. And I say, what would, what would my mother do uh, in, in this type of situation? So, you know, our, our approach and, and strategy, we do have uh, people, we, we have them as we call them our sales executives. Our sales executives are also in uh, on the, in the markets, uh, acquiring and, and selling the our, our value propositions to uh, these customers. But what they do additional is they're not taking orders, but they're there as support. They're there to uh, give a white glove teaching experience on how do you do, or teaching a customer, how do you change your ordering habits to not you know, order from pen and paper, but rather order from an application. So we've done that. And obviously, you know, uh, we have technology behind that to support our sales executives as well. We don't just send them into the field, but we have actually homegrown an application to guide them and ensure that their ability to talk to a customer, uh, even throughout time, when we revisit them, when we check in on saying, you know, how, how's things going? How's business? Uh, what else do you want? Uh, we, we give them that capability to understand more about the customer by filtering out a lot of their you know, transactional history or their behavioral patterns. Uh, so we, we give them that. Uh, but all in all, uh, you're, you're right. Uh, going from this model is just a transitionary step before we hit uh, into some uh, digital acquisition, uh, digital marketing, and understanding more about what are the, where are these uh, potential customers hanging out? Um, but that, that for us is more tailored towards the the user, what do they actually want from an approach perspective? Because maybe they actually prefer these relationships and uh, Indonesia being a very relationship driven country um, or culture, that's what we think works. And so uh, th that's what we will continue with. And on, on your second question of how, how do we build a, a platform uh, that is growing or is able to sustain the growth that we've seen uh, which has, you know, I think uh, our 
in the last year, we've grown 60x from where we started. It's it's painful, I would say, uh, and I would I would be lying if I said that there are no problems at all. Uh, yes, we we have invested in an uh, in an alarming tool to tell us when things break. So not saying that anything uh, nothing breaks, but uh, I would say thanks thanks to a a fantastic team in India in um, Indonesia, we have been able to build a platform that is very representative and very uh, strong at being able to solve the problems that we actually want to uh, solve for the customer. And, you know, we have core services, obviously, to uh, take orders to make sure that our uh, systems are up and running. But most of the the secret sauce, I think, in the back end, we have our own full supply chain system. You know, how do we uh, look over our uh, our, our warehouse inventory? How do we uh, coordinate our deliveries? And these are businesses whose livelihoods depend on the availability of inventory and the the, um, the timeliness of delivery. So we take that as one of our core value props in making sure that we do deliver on time. But the, the platform, the technology is one part of it. Operations is yet another that is, it just has to run like clockwork. What's next? on the roadmap for ULA. Um, obviously, you know, we've built this, we've built this marketplace. It's, it's, it's going well. I'm sure that obviously scale acquisition of, of, of users is, is, is key. Um, but from a, a product roadmap standpoint, um, do you have a, a list of clear things that you would like to add to the, to the platform? Um, or is there also a part of finding out what the users really want and then building that in. And I appreciate that. I know there's plenty of businesses in this space, so please don't give away any, any trade secrets, but um, <laughs> feel, feel free to sort of share what you can. Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I think I will, I will defer back to uh, learning what the, what the user wants. Uh, obviously we do have a, uh, a product roadmap, but a big part of that uh, I, I would call out is, is personalization. But personalization is all about understanding more about your customer and what they want and presenting them the right information, whether it is the, the, the products that they want to see, how they want to see it, uh, what time they want to see it, personalizing to uh, things as simple as the right timing of push notifications. Uh, don't disturb them in the time when they're busiest. We know that in the morning, there's a morning rush. In the afternoon, there's an afternoon rush. So why would we disturb them then? I think all of these things eventually will uh, cut the, I, I guess they will bring an experience that is superior to anything else that they've, they've done. And it would be seamless into their life, even though it's technology, which they don't understand. Now, uh, on, on top of that, I think uh, on, the, on the roadmap perspective, our supply chain systems that I talked about earlier, supply chain is super important as we grow it becomes more critical. Right now, we currently are on the main island of Java, uh, which is the biggest island in Indonesia. And we've covered East Java and Central Java and, and portions of West Java. Now, connecting these three markets uh, through a supply chain is already challenging enough. The next step, if, if we were to go to Bali, for example, that's, a, that's an island on its own. So uh, how do we actually do this? How do we make sure that uh, we are able to do this at an SLA that makes sense for our customers. I think those will be the, the right things to build out is essentially service. How do we ensure that the ULA service is top notch and it's something that people recognize. From a, from a sort of existing market standpoint, how, you know, how does that, how do those different markets behave? Is there a lot of interconnectivity between um, suppliers between the different regions or do, you know, do each of the regions tend to operate in a little bit sort of a, a siloed existence? Um, and do, do you think that uh, sort of that the ULA model will likely follow how that has evolved to, to you know, support that, that market dynamic with technology? Mm -hmm. Uh, to, to be honest, I, I don't know how that, that part will evolve. How it is right now is uh, it actually depends on the particular uh, principle or the, the top level brand. Uh, different brands run things differently. Uh, for example, I think, uh, actually, I won't put any names because I, I might uh, mix them up there. There's actually two different models. One is very localized in that every province actually is a, a one territory 
and the province itself has its own distribution and they outsource it to a, a local distributor and they figure out how to distribute. And another model is very national in that there is a one uh, control at the kind of the headquarters and then they essentially distribute into very, very small local hubs and local, I guess what you go wholesalers, for example. Mm-hmm. So two, two very different models uh, for, for us. I, I don't know how that will uh, evolve. I think we will yeah. see what makes sense for, you know, how do we serve the customer best? I don't think either one is superior to the other. I think both work and actually uh, the two examples come from the, the two largest brands in, in Indonesia. So uh, I'm sure they both have its merits and also its challenges. Now, obviously you've mentioned, if we if we sort of perhaps cast our eyes onto the challenges of growing an organization, you know, I, there's there's some incredible statistics around Southeast Asia at the moment on just the the amount of new jobs being created, um, the amount of investment of large players like you know like TikTok in in Singapore. There's a real gold rush for for talents in in the region, and I I think the the expectation is that that's it's been getting worse for the last five plus years, and it's only going to get going to continue getting worse. How how have you guys gone around building your organization? What challenges have you faced, and what how have you you know you, you mentioned you have organizations in Indonesia and, and in Bangalore. So what was the decision making process around around that sort of that sort of split? Yeah, I think my first comment and response there is uh, especially just with the technology lens. Where are engineers not in short demand? I almost feel like every market in the world is <laughs> under short demand, and it's it's difficult to build uh, tech organizations. But for 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 us specifically, for me, uh, you know, you you ask why split the site at, at such a very early stage. Looking back, um, the, my my gut are actually both um, the uh, both Nippon and I had this idea where the ability to hire in two different spots would be, it would make things faster, which in, in actuality it did. Now from, from me and, and Nippon, obviously he comes from, uh, he comes from India and he spent a lot of time in Bangalore. Uh, I myself uh, have worked with a lot of uh, Indian teams. And so I'm very familiar with uh, Indian recruiting. I'm very familiar with the Indian talent pool. And so actually getting started up there was quite easy. Uh, the The challenges, I think, uh, of uh, Indonesia hiring from a uh, not a very deep uh, uh, tech history, uh, knowing that the unicorns here are you know five to ten years old, uh, a lot of that experience is only starting to come up, uh, being very strong, and so. Uh, India having 20 years of experience in, in, in technology, uh, a lot uh, easier to find the uh, folks who have seen scale, who know exactly what the patterns are to, to use there. And so hence the decision to hire in both places. But one, one thing that we value a lot at, at ULA is the value of diversity. And uh, you know, even in our founding team, there, there's me, um, I'm Canadian or Canadian Chinese, uh, Nipponese Indian. And then we have two Indonesian co-founders, um, Ricky, who looks after the operations side of the business, and uh, Derry, who looks after the commercial and sales side. Even within our founding team, we have three different nationalities uh, growing up in different places and very well-traveled as a group. We see that in our organization as well. The, in ULA right now, we have, I believe, the last count we have over seven nationalities, and we're actually distributed over seven, uh, four countries right now. And so that being said, uh, the diversity makes us a lot stronger, especially in, in technology, when the diversity of thinking of how do we build for scale, but also for the scale that uh, Indonesia needs. You know, having those two lenses and being able to discuss and iterate and debate makes us a stronger team. And, and that's why I think we would chose to take this path. Now, the challenges with, with hiring, uh, I, I, I think the list is way too long to go through, but uh, finding the right talent, having them go through a painless interview process, getting them uh, an offer that makes sense, 
and finally having them show up. I think all of these have their own uh, challenges and how we've approached it is uh, really finding people that understand the mission and connect with the mission. And this is, I think, the biggest driver for all of our team is the true belief that what they're doing is something impactful, not only uh, for a, you know, a budding economy, a developing economy, but also for themselves to be actually doing something with a social impact, not necessarily building, you know, uh, a uh, cloud architecture for other businesses and, and, uh, and enterprises to use, uh, which is something, you know, I've, I've heard as firsthand feedback, as I ask, you know, um, do you enjoy your, your time at, at ULA after someone has, has been around for a couple of months? And this is the actual feedback that I hear. You know, you're, you're right with the, the everybody is looking for engineers everywhere at the moment. You know, it's that's, that's really that's a really, really sort of pertinent statement. And I think it's going to be interesting in the different regions, how how everybody solves the same problem. I, you know, I, I think um, it's it, it's uh, here in the Middle East, it's people are, are, are struggling with the same the same problems of trying to build um, trying to build startups that can scale with the right tools and the right people, but then just finding those people and, and not sort of turning it into, I guess, a, a local market gold rush on one, <laughs> one particular person. Do you, do you think that the, the again, with, with COVID and with that, it's, it's kind of moved forward the agenda for distributed teams? Um, you know, obviously everybody, you know, it's, it's almost been immaterial where you, you've been based now because, you, you know, I could be next door to you, but we still, we still wouldn't be able to meet. Do you think that that, that, has, um, that has sort of driven the agenda forward for, um, for, for distributed teams? Yes, one, 100%. The, I, I used the word catalyst earlier, and I think that is, that's really what it is. In, in the tech industry, I think when you look at these large companies, uh, especially based in Silicon Valley, a lot of them have embraced uh, distributed teams, but no one has ever figured out how to make it really work. Or there's a bias that they think it doesn't really work. One interesting thing for us is we launched the company in January, 2020. Uh, COVID closed the country down in March. And so we had two months operating as a normal company with an office and we spent the last 12 months as a distributed company and it, it is, it is, it is hard. I think uh, a lot of companies aren't as fortunate as, as us where we built the company, we built the team with remote working in mind. We knew we were going to be a distributed team, whereas everyone else had to figure out and stop adapt and then continue. So I, I think in that process, we were able to gain a couple of months of, of speed there Um but it, it, it is definitely one of those, I guess, blessings in disguise that um, we were able to weather that storm in terms of how do we create a team that functions and works distributed. And this is learnings that I picked up when uh, I was at uh, Booking, where I actually was at a uh, team that was in Amsterdam and in Seattle. Probably the two almost furthest places uh, from, from each other, they were nine hours apart. So it's not uh, that big of a time gap, but nine hours was you, you go through an entire workday and by the end of one workday, the other picks up. I think that's where I learned a lot of the, the techniques that we use today, uh, which is, you know, over-communicate. That's one of the things that we know works. Communicate, communicate, communicate. And especially in, uh, you know, technology and in, in my organization, it's documentation. Document everything, uh, whatever decisions are being made, what are your ideas, allow for asynchronous communication because you don't have this face-to-face, -face. You, you can't run up to someone else's desk and I can't knock on your desk, Sam, and say, hey, I need to ask you for a, a quick thing and we're gonna hop to this whiteboard and solve this in 15 minutes. That doesn't happen anymore. So to create the same ability to collaborate and brainstorm, we've taken the whiteboard experience over to an, a, a documentation tool like Confluence, but I think, yeah, over communication and being able to uh, have this async com 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 conversation uh, over a, a document is actually key to running a distributed organization. And how, how will this, um, how, how do you foresee this evolving once we, 
get past the long tail of COVID and once, you know, it's acceptable to get back into offices. How do you see that um, sort of, you know, manifesting for, 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 for the, uh, you know, the engineering sort of team at ULA or you guys at ULA? Yeah. For us, I think, uh, thankfully, like I said, we've uh, just needed to adapt. We didn't really have to change too much of our processes. We just built our company around uh, being distributed. When all this comes to an end, uh, it's my belief that uh, humans are social creatures. We need to see each other. But do we need to see each other on a daily basis after we've been able to prove ourselves to work independently and apart? I think that that would be a little, it would be very, it would be a very boastful thing to claim that uh, in-person working is superior to remote working when we've shown very clearly and our team has shown us that it is possible. So don't quote me on this. Uh, HR will probably kill me for saying this, but uh, <laughs> I, I think we will we will end up in a optional uh, optional office situation. And yeah. one one of the things that I'll, I'll share is we took up a, a lease of a co working space in I believe it was March 2020. Uh, this was at the very beginning of of COVID, and we got a very it was a huge room. It was 23 seats. And at the time, I think we were half that, 15-ish or so. And we thought, great, this would be amazing. And lo and behold, uh, we saw a lot of good traction through the, the year. And obviously, in the middle of the year, uh, we announced our seed. And that's when we picked up the pace. And at this point, I think we just crested over 200 people with that same 23-person office. And it works because <laughs> we rotate. We figure out who, uh, which teams want to use the office when. It works. Uh, we're we're actually coincidentally uh, upgrading to a forty-three person office, I think, and <laughs> it's still much less than what we what we have bodies for. But this rotation mechanism actually works really well because as long as you give someone the possibility of having a small meeting room that you can gather two, three people, your your immediate team to go and brainstorm something for a couple of hours, yeah. I think that that's what we need. It's just the ability to collaborate on different mediums, but not necessarily needing, requiring someone to be having these uh, in-person conversations all the time. I mean, this is really kind of my my hope for uh, a lot of businesses coming out the the other side of COVID is exactly this. I think a lot, you know, um, it, this is a wonderful data point on a, a sort of a hypothesis I had is that, you know, coming out the other side, you realize that you don't need to sit, sit next to somebody in silence and, and work through a day's work to get a, a day's work done, you know, actually having an, um, I, I, one of my sort of, you know, wanderings was, um, are companies going to start using their office space for more collaboration center type work rather than have everybody come and sit next to each other in silence and work and then go home at the end of the day and everybody's sort of crammed into tubes or trains or whatever like that whether whether a better use of that space and that that resource will be to to allow people to come together and collaborate and to speak more and to to work on ideas and and have almost more of like a serendipity space where people are in for a particular period of time each week and then sort of back off to do their to do their work as they as they wish to do it so and this is sounds like exactly what you guys are doing so <laughs> that's, yeah that's and, awesome. and the good thing with uh being able to uh you know as we grow we're, we're taking this this office space i was telling you about uh, we have the option to customize and what we've seen as the best way to work is actually more small meeting rooms less around the um the physical seating area because we know people won't need to sit there for the day but they need a place in an area to quickly collaborate and get things onto a whiteboard and go. And so that that's actually what we're optimizing our workplace to become. And I think that could be the future of work as uh, all these other companies are adapting to the, to the new normal. What, 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 how is workspace going to change over time? And this could be it. It just could be work is a collaboration space. Now it's no longer a place where you spend your nine to five. Well, we can we can hope. I think that would um, a lot of people would be very happy with that. So, um, awesome. And one thing I've seen as well is a lot of big big businesses are taking um, taking desks, um, co working spaces, um, so that they, they might have three or four centres across a metropolis, a big collaboration space in the middle, and people can kind of opt in to different areas or to different locations or or sort of that that sort of thing. So um, it's um, it's going to be really fascinating how this all how this all manifests. And I, I think one of the 
the silver linings of the long of the longevity of this lockdown is that it's really stress tested the idea that you need people in the same room. And I think that there's a lot of people that perhaps for a more traditional um, sort of view on this, just the length of time they've had to endure this remote working, you know, I'm sure they're looking forward to getting back, but I think there's still, it sort of continues to prove that you don't necessarily need to have that, that sort of more traditional work environment. So fascinating. Um, I guess before we get on to the the, um, the really important quick fire question rounds, which are, you know clearly the most important part of any, of any any of the podcast, I'd love to get your um your sort of perhaps your you know three learnings or three top tips you would give other aspiring CTOs or people in early stage businesses or things you would have loved to have known twelve months ago, <laughs> a sort of COVID notwithstanding, um, you know sort of perhaps business growth tips that you could you could you could share. Wow, business growth. I think maybe the, the first one I, I never get tired of saying, and I've said before, is uh, listen to your customer. Only through listening can you build the right product, and only when you have a right product can you actually have growth. And for, I mean, there, there's probably exceptions that there are probably wrong products that have still been able to grow, but then I, I ask, you know, does one want to build a product that matters or one that doesn't matter? Uh, so I think that's my, my tip number one. Second, I think data is uh, underappreciated in, in many uh, organizations. Uh, and especially as a CTO, one of the things that I felt was super, it was very necessary for me to do at an early age was, or at an early age of the company was to, facilitate uh, data, uh, data moving from people to people, from person to person, from uh, being able to extract something from a database to be able to do analysis, even as simple as doing analysis on a spreadsheet. It's still building a habit that data is important and decisions driven by data are more valuable than just simple opinions that, that someone has. So I think that would be my, my number two. My number three is around uh, culture. Uh, and this doesn't apply only to tech, but to as a, as a company. Um, always going back to what is the drumbeat and what, what is the mission? What's the vision? Being able to fluently share that and to ensure that everyone is on the same page, going in the same direction, rowing the boat where it needs to go. Uh, super important and especially as a organization starts uh, growing and for us I think when we started off with you know eight people 15 it was it was easy we saw each other every day we had lunch together it was very easy to align but maybe as the company grew especially in during COVID where we have team members that have not met each other I haven't met everyone at this point and having that collective understanding of what each other's role is and where we're all going towards. I think that is probably one of the most effective or most essential things to do as a leader. And I guess, is there anything, anything else you'd like to add that I haven't asked about? I think for uh, emerging markets, uh, especially, you know, in Southeast Asia, one of the things I, I've seen is the, lack of understanding of, of technology. And so uh, maybe there's a tip for just <clears throat> folks that uh, haven't been brought up in, in this region and have come uh, to bring external knowledge to, to the region is understanding that a lot of the UX paradigms that apply in the West absolutely make no sense in, uh, in the East. And one example I'll, I'll draw is uh, the hamburger menu, you know, to me, the hamburger menu was super understandable. You put it on the top left, there's three lines. Everyone's going to understand that's where the settings would, would go in the app. And lo and behold, when you go test whether or not people understand it's there, they don't know what that thing is. They don't even know it's a button. And so uh, I, I think the, the observation or the learning there is test, uh, test out all of your, um, hypotheses because they're biased. And as humans, I think this was just a re reaffirmation to me is that everything that I've learned 
apply somewhere, but at this point, it's it's a bias to me. So um, my my learning is question everything that even comes in my head, and I bounce it off with a lot of people. And going back to communication is key, and being able to get feedback from others is, is very important. I guess that there's um, with a sort of a, a level of maturity of a market comes a certain set of assumptions that you make when you're when you're doing anything, and I think um, it, it sort of becomes second nature to just assume that 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 is is sort of given knowledge across all, all markets so um yeah um that's yeah very interesting thank you um absolutely great um so look we're on to the on to the final section um the now world famous quick fire question round um i'm I, excited I, I know it's world famous because I, at least one i've spoken to at least one person in the uk about it so <laughs> um so gonna, yeah gonna go through three four questions and then uh yeah look forward to your answers on this um are you ready ready as can be fire away fantastic um excellent here we go um what is the best advice you've been given oh best advice best advice best advice was probably from a mentor of mine back in Amazon who told me that uh, you have only 10 fingers and 24 hours in a day. And out of context, that sounds really weird, but what he was trying to get to was that there, at some point you have to become a manager in your life. And this was when I was in my second or third year in, into engineering, I thought coding was the best thing and being an engineer, uh, a star engineer who could code anything was my lifelong dream. And he just, he told me that exactly in those words. And he said, once you have enough ideas that you want to execute on, you won't have enough time to co-code them up. And the only way is to learn how to lead and how to become uh, a manager and how to inspire others so that they follow you too and be able to build something. And I think over the course of my career, that's what I've been trying to do. And now really putting the this to the test now is really being uh, sitting in the leadership position to build out something that I do believe in. And I'm very happy and grateful that the team also believes in me as well as the vision that we have established for ULA. Excellent. Next question. Um, what's the, where is the first place you will visit um, when travel restrictions are lifted? Very practical answer is to go back to Toronto to go and see some family. I haven't seen them since uh, August 2019. So I, I think it's due time for a visit. Um, what, what is your most obscure hobby? I don't know if it's as obscure as, uh, you know, catching octopus in my bare hands, but uh, I, I do appreciate uh, <laughs> uh, performance uh, driving both uh, on a four wheeler and a two wheeler. So uh, I've, I've spent a lot of uh, time in uh, on, on racing tracks to uh, learn how to drive and, and ride. And uh, both of those experiences have definitely come with uh, their, their risks and I have almost died doing both. And um, I guess the follow on question to that is like, what's your favorite car and what's your favorite bike? Ooh, 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 this is gonna ignite some there's going to ignite a lot of feedback here. I feel uh, the, the 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 bike, the um, BMW 1000 R is probably the most technologically advanced bike that I I didn't own one, but I did a, a track day in a school, a three day school uh, at the track with this bike, and it is so advanced that not that you can't crash it you definitely can uh, anyone can do anything stupid if they wanted to but it actually corrects a lot of uh newbie errors and i, I just thought that was a fantastically designed machine uh, on on the car aspect i'm i'm a fan of jeeps just a very maybe an, an old jeep new jeep doesn't matter actually just something that is built for purpose and use it for purpose. I'd, I'd love to go, you know, in, into uh, the back roads and just get the, a Jeep covered in mud and I just leave it there because that's yeah. the, that's the state it needs to be in. Yeah. 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 I, excellent. I think um, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the four wheel drives. Obviously I live in the desert now. Well, <laughs> I live in the, the shining metropolis just next to the desert. But um, uh, one, one thing a lot of people in Dubai do is they, they have a four wheel drive and they, they drive out to the desert and they, they, they camp or they go off roading and stuff like that. And that's something I'm, I'm starting to really get into. So I'm, I'm, I'm really with you on the, uh, on, on the deep thing there. 
Um, <laughs> next one. What is your favorite terrible management slogan? Ooh, that one's a, a little hard. I, I think, uh, wow, I would say maybe, I don't know if it's a, if it's a slogan. Uh, there's a model of thinking uh, called the Tuckman Stages of Group Development. And uh, in it, it says that uh, groups develop in, in four stages. There's forming, forming, storming, norming, and performing. And there was this one question that always uh, ticked me off when someone asked me, is, is, your, is your team storming or norming? Because it's not performing. And I, I, I just always cringed at that because I, I one, I believe in uh, that teams are individuals. Um, they're they're in, uh, organisms that evolve by themselves and you kind of have to treat each one differently. And so they're really hard to put them into a framework. And somehow I don't really believe that uh, teams have to get at each other's neck going through this storming phase uh, to get into uh, normalization and then performance. Uh, but that, that was one of the, the models that came up in my head, as, as you said, uh, management and terrible. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I find anything that follows a, a framework is is reductive a lot of the time. It's, you know, I think um, particularly particularly this one, and it, it's it's perhaps a little dated on the on the idea that storming is a healthy thing for for <laughs> for a team to do. Um, uh, okay, so tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Uh, a, a lot of people disagree with a lot of things I say, so this is this could be an easy one. Uh, <laughs> but what do I hold as true? I, I think maybe it's not something I necessarily hold as true, but it's something that I I want to believe is true. Is that I want to believe that uh, physical physical capability of human beings is capped, whereas mental capability is not. And I'll expand on that a, a little bit on that, uh, and why I think that way is that I don't think every anyone in the world can be Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt is probably one of three, if even, human beings in the world that can run a sprint as fast as he does. But mental capability, I feel, is something that is built up over time in the right environment with the right people, with the right mentors, with the right leaders. And you know, this is one of the reasons why I feel uh, very strongly about uh, investing in, in my people and my team. I identify, uh, one, of the, one of the things I actually evaluate on in my interviews is curiosity. Do you have the curiosity to learn? Because curiosity will drive uh, capability. It, curiosity will make you ask questions that you want to do better. And those are the, the future leaders are people that just ask questions and they, under, they try to understand the world around them and they figure things out. So that, that's what I hold true because it helps me uh, approach the world as well. But uh, I, I have gotten some disagreement with that. Um, mostly a lot of people will uh, think that their physical, physical capability is uncapped, but I respond to them and say, wait until you're 35, you're only 23 right now. Uh, <laughs> but, that, but that is what it is. <laughs> and, and the last question, um, what part of the future are you most excited by? Oh, uh, Two of my, I guess, favorite topics uh, is uh, one is technology, as it is obvious, as our last hour has has confirmed. But an another is education, and maybe this actually uh, follows on from my previous comment that mental capability is is not fixed. And I think that you know, looking back when I was growing up, and you probably knew this too, is uh, encyclopedias. There were volumes and volumes of encyclopedias that were just now we it would be very weird to see anyone at home with a encyclopedia set because you can do the same thing on wikipedia okay granted the information might not be fully correct and you have to vet it from somewhere else true but uh information is just out there uh there's actually a tremendous amount maybe too much how do we use technology to deliver this information in a well-formed way to increase education and increase uh, others' capability to do something. I think that's where I see the future where, you know, humans have maybe, you know, 
had another crossed another cusp of uh, evolution, and now we can use the internet and this available technology to even advance more of our uh, evolution through uh, learning and education. Fantastic, Alan. Thank you. Um, that was. That was awesome, and thank you very much for joining me. Um, it's been a it's been a real pleasure, um, and it's been great to have you on the show. So, so thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity, Sam. It was uh, super fun to catch up with you again. Uh, we shall do this again and another time. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Emerging Markets Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. We will be back in a few weeks' time and have some fascinating guests lined up as we continue our exploration of the Middle East and Southeast Asia's most exciting businesses and investors. I look forward to seeing you then. Stay safe. Farewell.